It's always the same. You take over a country or a planet, teach them your ways, make them civilized. But are they grateful? Do they welcome your world domination and tyranny? No. The thankless peons dare to ask no demand. Their freedom. Unappreciative miscreants. Sounds like it's time for episode 64 of Pop Art, the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture, and I'll select a film from the more art classic indie side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your It's a trap host howard kasner today i am happy to welcome as my guest filmmaker and fellow podcaster derek diamond who has chosen as his film the sequel to the blockbuster star wars perhaps not so blockbuster but perhaps superior the empire strikes back well i have chosen the french neo-realist classic the battle for algiers both films about people fighting an empire for their freedom Before beginning, I do want to encourage my listeners to follow, like, or comment on the podcast. I want to know what you think. To begin, Derek, why don't you tell our audience something about yourself? Well, first of all, thank you so much, Howard, for having me on the show. It's interesting because I'm still getting used to being a guest on other people's shows because I'm so used to doing my own that it's weird to just show up and talk, if that makes any sense. Yes, and not have to do much of the back work or anything. Exactly. So a little bit about me. I live in Pensacola, Florida, which is in the northwest portion of Florida, just outside of the Gulf of Mexico. I've been doing my podcast, The Derek Diamond Experience, for about seven and a half years now. Uh, recently hit 300 episodes back in March. And as we're recording this, I'm up to about 325, 326, uh, where I talk about, much like you do, film and TV. I do reviews, reaction videos to you know, trailers, news stories that might pop up. And I also interview those who work in the film industry because I decided to use my podcast as an educational tool for myself because filmmaking is something I'm still learning about and something that I want to get more involved with. I did make my first short film, The Parker Syndrome, a couple of years ago. We filmed it in December of 2018, finished the edit, and premiered it in July of 2019, recently wrapped up its festival run, and it's available now on YouTube. Well, sounds pretty good to me. Well, with that, let's get to your selection, and that is The Empire Strikes Back, a.k.a. Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back. First, some information about the film. The Empire Strikes Back is an American space opera released in 1980. It was directed by Irvin Kirshner and written by Lee Brackett and Lawrence Kasdan, based on a story by George Lucas. It stars Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, Billy Dee Williams, Anthony Daniels, David Prowse, James Earl Jones, Peter Mayhew, Kenny Baker, Frank Oz, Alec Guinness, Jillian Glover, and John Ratzenberger, who has his Pixar moment. He does, yeah. (laughs) It's amazing. You see him in a ton of films where you just either see his face or he has a single line. And you can't miss him because nobody looks like John Ratzenberger. That's very true. Long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, the Rebel Alliance and its fight for freedom has destroyed the Death Star, a satellite that has the power to destroy planets. But the war for independence is far from over as the Rebels gather at a remote base. In the process, Luke Skywalker goes to train as a Jedi Knight while Han Solo and Princess Leia try to get away from Darth Vader who, for some unexplained reason, will do anything to take Skywalker alive. Why did you choose this film? For two reasons. One, Star Wars is my favorite favorite film franchise of all time. The Empire Strikes Back isn't just my favorite movie in the series, but it's also my favorite movie of all time. 
I can remember from an early age, I was around four or five years old watching Star Wars for the first time. On VHS, for those who remember what VHS is, I watched them at my uncle's house. He was a big fan. He introduced me to a lot of things that I still carry with me to this day as far as fandom goes. But Star Wars is the most noticeable one and the important one. When I watched Star Wars for the first time, I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. Everything from the Death Star, the ships, the space battles, I was blown away by it. And I was even more blown away by The Empire Strikes Back. Now, when I was a kid, I liked it because, one, it had the introduction of Yoda, who is one of my favorite characters in the series. You got to see all the bounty hunters, like Boba Fett, but you also had IG-88, Boss, Dengar, that you learned about in the books following that, but you got to actually see them on the screen. Now, as I've gotten older, and I've watched this film, I love the tone that it has. It, to me, is almost the perfect sequel in that it built on the foundation laid in Star Wars slash A New Hope, where you learned more about the backstory of these characters. You got to see the relationships build, especially with the romance that builds between Han and Leia. You see Luke take the next step in his journey to try and become a Jedi Knight. You introduce Yoda, who's one of the most important characters in the entire series. And of course, the infamous revelation at the end of the film that blew audiences away. I tell people if I had a time machine, I would love to go back in time and watch The Empire Strikes Back on opening night, knowing that no one knows what's about to happen when Vader utters the often misquoted line, no, I am your father. Yes, it is one of the most famous misquoted movie lines of all time. I watched it again about a month or two ago, and I was still blown away by the steps that it took from A New Hope. The effects looked a little better. You could tell that the crew learned, because they had to invent a lot of technologies, especially the space battle on the Death Star. There's a lot of special features that you can go look at, but just watching the models being built the model ships, the Death Star Trench was a model. It was just insane, amazing stuff. I think a lot of modern filmmakers may not appreciate because you see the work and the effort that went into making these classics happen. But going back to the characters is why I love this movie so much, is seeing the next step in the journey with Han becoming less egotistical and selfish. You can see the chinks in the armor, if you will, where he's not just a selfish smuggler only looking out for himself. He falls in love with Princess Leia. You see Luke interact more with Obi-Wan, learn more about the history of the Jedi with Yoda being introduced. Anytime you see Darth Vader on screen, to me, is awesome. You're automatically drawn to it. And you're wondering why he's so obsessed with Luke. I think I also like the fact that it had a darker tone to it as opposed to A New Hope and Return of the Jedi because the Empire gets a victory over the Rebels, but it doesn't end on a totally down note. I first saw it when it opened. I saw all of the Star Wars films when they opened except for the first three, which... I've only seen the first one, and because I found it unintelligible and I couldn't even follow the plot, I never bothered to watch the second two. I do have to make a statement here. No matter what I say, I enjoy these first three Star Wars films very much. The trilogy as a whole is on my list of the top 100 films. In full disclosure, I think the films are more important rather than good. And I talked about this on the episode I did with Paul Seidman, where we talked Star Wars in the Hidden Fortress. 
Chris. However, this is my favorite of the three middle movies. As you say, it's better directed, it's better written, it looks better, and it is edgier than the first one. I will have to say it's not my favorite Star Wars film. That is actually Rogue One. Good choice. Which, which is probably the most edgy of all the Star Wars films. What are some of your favorite scenes? I mentioned earlier the scene where Vader reveals that he is Luke's father. One, I think it's a very powerful scene, and it's one of the most iconic in the history of film. Other than that, the one that I go to the most is the entire Battle of Hoth sequence. It's one of still the best-looking, best-choreographed war scenes that I've seen in any movie, from the AT-AT walkers to the urgency from the rebels knowing that they're pretty outmatched early. Even when they take the snow speeders out to use the tow cables to fight the walkers, which is a really cool moment, too. That whole sequence, everything from the way it's shot, acting, visuals... And I also have to throw this in there. I think it's also one of John Williams' best Star Wars pieces with the score. And I know you've talked about John Williams before on your show. To me, he is, if not the greatest, the most iconic film composer of all time, just from his resume alone. But his score in The Battle of Hoth is one that, as soon as I hear the first couple of notes, I can visualize the entire sequence. When Yoda reveals to Luke who he actually is, is up there for me too. Those would be my two go-tos. Well, I certainly agree about the opening battle on Hoth. That is certainly one of my favorites. In addition to the battle on Hoth, one of my favorite moments certainly is the chase through the asteroid belt, where they go into what they think is a cave, but turns out to be something else entirely. I thought this was a lot of fun, very clever, very witty, uh, very suspenseful. However, here I must dispel a common belief. The asteroid belt scene is scientifically inaccurate since the average length between asteroids is 600,000 miles. So if you went through an asteroid belt, it would be almost impossible for an asteroid to hit you or for you to hit an asteroid. I have heard about that. I forgot about the asteroid scene, too. And that's another one of my favorite John Williams compositions. That It's one of those that you hear it and you visualize it, minus the scientific facts of it. It's still an enjoyable scene to me. Well, it's just fun. Nobody knows that. Nobody cares about that. I don't care about it. I heard it on a game show show and ever since i just think about that before getting in deeper i do want to go back to what i said earlier about star wars being important but not necessarily good and i think here we'll probably disagree a bit i think the trilogy really influenced movies and it inspired a lot of filmmakers they are incredibly entertaining but for me especially in the first and the third but still somewhat in the second it has a lot of faults one of it is that the three central characters are to me incredibly flat and one-dimensional they become much more vibrant in the second one but in the third for very reasons they went back to the ideas and approach of the first one so they lost a lot of that vibrancy in the second one but at the time that star wars opened i said that when your androids have more personality than the humans you're in trouble <laughs> and my favorite quote is harrison ford telling lucas i'll say excrement so i won't use the four letter word george you can type this excrement but you can't say it i also read but i can't confirm this was at the time of star wars came out when publicists and other magazines wrote articles you're never quite sure when they're telling the truth or when they're not Alec Guinness begged Lucas not to put him in the sequels because he didn't want to keep saying those awful lines however according to other sources he had recently had an eye operation and the bright lights would be a problem so he only appears in it for very short periods of time the other actors that do well are all the English actors Peter Cushing James Earl Jones who isn't British but these are all the actors who can read the telephone book and come out smelling like roses to mix a metaphor I don't disagree with that and that's something 
one thing that I've been saying about George Lucas since I became, I guess, old enough to be more aware of what's going on behind the scenes with film and all the videos and documentaries I've watched. George Lucas is a great storyteller, but that doesn't make you a good writer. And I'm one that will say to anyone who isn't as familiar or as big of a fan with Star Wars and they've maybe watched them once and didn't care for them and they talk about, well, it doesn't sound that great as far as the dialogue. I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I think that's also where, and this could be a whole separate discussion, where the nostalgia of Star Wars comes in, where someone like me who watched it very early on and fell in love with it, introducing it to somebody who's an adult may think differently. Right. I enjoyed it in spite of its issues, and Lucas's best films do tend to be written by other people, American Graffiti, The Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I remember you talking about this with my friend Steve talking about Jaws. I think Star Wars also is very important in the sense where Jaws revolutionized the summer blockbuster. Star Wars revolutionized a way of storytelling and science fiction that we've seen evolve since then. Yes, emphasis is not so much on the science, but on fantasy. Correct. Uh, Before really beginning and getting into many of the technical and other aspects of the film, there is another aspect I do want to cover. This is something, I don't know if you are more aware of because you saw it long after it came out, but I saw it at the time that it came out. And this is the charge of racism. When Star Wars was released, it was accused of being racist. Maybe I shouldn't say racist, that it had a racist issue or an issue with race. And full disclosure, I also noticed this at the time, and I agreed with what people were saying, though I thought the problem was actually larger. Most people said it was racist because all the characters that were humanoid in Star Wars were white. All the central characters are white. But I thought it went beyond that. Not only were only the main characters white. If you weren't humanoid, you were the bad guys of the galaxy. You were the scum and villainy. You were the used car salesmen of droids who weren't to be trusted. The only ultimate good guys were white humanoids. So when the Empire Strikes Back comes out, Lo and behold, we now have Billy D. Williams as Lando Calrissian, who is black. Now, at the time, the producer said that he was not included in response to the charges of racism, but everybody I knew and we in the audience said, oh, no, that's pure bullocky. We know why you did this. If they didn't, then I almost want to say it's even worse, because then they have even less of an excuse of only using white people than the first one. He believed that it was a token role. He was reassured that it was not specifically written for a black actor, which doesn't mean discussing wasn't token but we now also have one good guy who isn't humanoid that's yoda and on lando's satellite we have some references to just regular inhabitants who aren't humanoids they're species from other planets but they're not scum and villainy they're just regular everyday people like you and me then as we got the further sequels and then prequels suddenly the galaxy is inhabited by all of these various species such that if you see them in order, you might wonder, where did all these other species disappear to by the time Chapter 4 came around? One last thing here, and I know I'm speechifying, so forgive me, but this is something I noticed this time, and it's the use of the word human. Sometimes it's used to differentiate the character from a droid, but it also seems to be used at times to refer to people who look like Earthlings, not the people who don't look like Earthlings. They're not referred to as humans. But these humans are people from all different planets and backgrounds, even if they all look alike. So what makes them human, say, and why isn't Yoda human? So the creation of these films basically were going through a transition period in movies where they were trying to figure out what to do about issues like this. 
Right. That is something, kind of backtrack on what you were saying about the Billy D. Williams story and there not being enough diversity in the galaxy. I did notice that as I got older. I like to do a rewatch of this trilogy specifically, but it, that is something that I did notice for sure. They've definitely made an effort to correct that, especially with the new movies, the last trilogy that came out between 2015 and 2019. You can see the effort. It also relates in a certain way for women. We have one strong independent woman in the three middle Star Wars, it's Princess Leia, who is basically the commander-in-chief of the Rebellion. But as time went on, especially in the last three Star Wars, as women have become more demanding of better parts, suddenly there are more women in the series. But what's perhaps the oddest aspect here is that Leia has the Force, but it never seems to occur to Darth Vader that he should bring Leia over to the dark side, even when he has her captive. And he, interesting. I think that's not so much something about women, as we'll get into how the screenplay is written. They didn't expect to have to do a sequel once they had to do a sequel. Now they have to start coming up with all this stuff, and they start getting these ideas, and they say, okay, we'll make Leia his sister and give her the Force without thinking about, well, that means that part of the first movie doesn't really make sense anymore. And that's the issue with planning out a trilogy or planning out parts two and three after the success of the first one, is that then you have to go through everything with a fine-tooth comb thinking, okay, does this make sense? Does this not make sense? Should we do it? Yeah, it was a miss on their part. Irvin Kirshner was the director. We've talked a little about it, but what do you think of the directing? So much better than the original. If you compare the three movies, Empire Strikes Back has the best. I certainly agree with that. He started out in TV and documentaries. He never really made it as anything more than a working director. Empire is probably his best film. He's also known for The Eyes of Laura Mars. But he did emphasize the darker aspect of the film. And he also gets better performances out of the actors than in the first one. Right. When making sequels to a successful film is you have to look at ways on how to make things better. I mentioned that George Lucas is a great storyteller, but maybe not so much a great writer. I also don't think he's the greatest director. Now, I think he was the right person to direct A New Hope because that was his vision and he was the one who needed to actually lay that foundation. Now, from there, I give him credit for allowing Irvin Kirshner to direct the film. I don't know this for a fact, but it seems like he had enough awareness to know that Irvin Kirshner or someone else needed to direct the film. And then Lee Brackett and Lawrence Kasdan wrote the script. George Lucas still came up with the story, but he put it in the hands of other filmmakers, which I think was the right decision. You do mention the screenplay, which is by Lawrence Kasdan and Lee Brackett. And as we said, we both think it's superior to the original. I love it. As I mentioned almost countless times, it's my favorite of the stories. I love the darker tone. I think the dialogue is much better. It's performed better, which which I think speaks highly of Kirshner as well as Brackett and Kasdan, because you still have to have good lines to be able to perform them, I think. There has been talk about who really wrote it and who contributed what. I will say Lawrence Kasdan, who was also writing Raiders of the Lost Ark when he was taken on to write this, is in many ways better known for his films more focused on character, like The Big Chill, Grand Canyon, The Bodyguard, Body Heat. He's a very popular filmmaker. I find him just okay as a director-writer, but his films have strong followings. And since his 
his emphasis is on character, that was probably a big boon in writing this one because someone needed to come in and do something about these characters. As a little side note here, in 2012, Kasdan participated in the Sight and Sound film polls of that year. It's held every 10 years to select the greatest films of all time. Temporary directors were asked to select 10 films of their choice. And The Battle for Algiers, which we'll talk about next, was in his list. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, that was nice to find out. Now, Lee Brackett has a really strong cult following, both in films and because she was a science fiction writer, was called the Queen of Space Opera. She was often mistaken for a man, which is actually how she got her first big job in the movies. When Howard Hawks was doing The Big Sleep, he found out about it and said, contact this guy. And then when a woman showed up, he was a bit surprised, but he didn't care. So she was one of the three writers on The Big Sleep. She also wrote Rio Bravo and The Long Goodbye. But in the end, it doesn't look like much of her contribution made it through to the final film. She came up with a lot of ideas, many of which are still used. Things like A City in the Clouds, A Chase Through an Asteroid Belt, A Bigger Emphasis on the Love Triangle between Luke, Han, and Leia, The Battle of Hoth, the climatic battle between Luke and Darth Vader. But she also had things like Luke is visited by the ghost of his father and Obi-Wan Kenobi. The draft revealed Luke has a sister, but it's not Leia. It has Han going on a mission to recruit his powerful stepfather, and Landau is a clone from the Clone Wars. Luke has made detailed notes and attempted to contact Brackett, but she had been hospitalized. She died a few weeks later. So that was the end of her input on film. And Kasdan pretty much just completely rewrote the characters and dialogue. He thought they were outdated. He didn't think that the Writers Guild of America would approve her receiving credit, but Lucas liked Brackett and supported her credit as co-writer. also provided for a family beyond her contracted pay. Good on him for doing that. I did want to say this real quick because I think when it comes to film in general, and I wanted to throw this out there because we're talking about the screenplay, as great as some of the effects were revolutionary, and you can throw in your great visuals, but to me, when it all comes down to it, and I know that even Steven Spielberg has said this in numerous interviews, the most important thing is the story and its characters, and that's why I love this movie. Well, that's why I think this is the best. Out of perhaps all of them, except, sorry, my favorite, Rogue One, just because the characters are much, much stronger, and you become as involved with the characters as you do with special effects. Right. But now, since we're talking about the screenplay, we can get into some of the meanings behind the movie, the philosophy, if you will, the theology. Throughout the whole trilogy, but in this one especially because of the steps that are taken, that classic journey of the hero that we hear about in writing film classes, that's definitely prevalent here. I think there's a theme of almost growing up in a way, and also defeat, because really the Empire wins the battle in this specific installment, because Han has been frozen in carbonite, has been taken off by Boba Fett. Luke loses his hand, and he's in a way mentally broken because he's had this revelation of who his father really is, and can he actually believe Vader? Is he just lying to try and get in his head? But then also he says the lines, Ben, why didn't you tell me? So journey and coping with loss is a recurring theme. I think those are very important ideas and themes. And yes, Lucas was very influenced by Joseph Campbell and the use of myth. In addition, from the very beginning, I always thought of the whole franchise. That is a reflection of a philosophy or theology called monarchism, which is a form of dualism. And this was a major religion that rivaled Christianity at the time when Christianity was trying to replace paganism. It was founded in the third century by the prophet Mani. It's a form of dualistic cosmology 
Trilogy, in which it says that the world is a battle between good and evil. The main difference between monarchism and Christianity is that in Christianity, good will eventually triumph, even if it's in the afterworld or after the apocalypse. But this isn't necessarily true in monarchism. The bad can win out in the end, and that's what keeps the universe in balance is this constant battle. Lucas says that he tended to have the idea of a god in Star Wars so that the good part ultimately has to win in the long run. And he does believe in God, but I never saw any evidence of that at all. I agree with you. I never got the vibe that there was a higher power or a godlike figure in this universe. When Jedis die, they become one with the Force. If everyone else dies, they die. There's nothing mentioned about an afterlife other than a Jedi being able to retain their consciousness through the Force. Which is more Buddhism right. than Zen religions. But there's also a lot of existentialism here, which had been introduced by France to the movies in the 60s and 70s. And this mainly centers on Skywalker and Solo because they have to make a choice as to how to find themselves. Existentialism is a philosophy that among its tenets is that your end and world has no essential meaning, so you have to decide what your meaning is. And both Skywalker and Solo are forced into an existential dilemma as to decide what their meaning in life is and what is going to define them. Existentialism grew out of people who were involved in the French resistance during World War II, like Sartre, who will be mentioned in the Battle of Algiers. But there's another aspect of it that I think is very much part of its time. When you read or see films or TV shows like this, sci-fi and fantasy, they're often inspired or based on some true event or issue. Like The Lord of the Rings is inspired by World War II. Dune is inspired by the Middle East fight over oil. Game of Thrones ended its war in the War of the Roses. But I'm not sure this is super Star Wars. I can't really place an issue like that at the time or anything in history that it's really based on. I could be missing it. At the same time, it seems to be based on what I would call as postmodern nostalgia. It's based on a combination of earlier movies. Lucas, Spielberg, Scorsese were the first filmmakers who went to film school and who grew up on going to movies. So the movie is not so much a comment on something outside in the world that's political or historical. It's a comment on movies, which is very, very postmodern. Right. And I was actually trying to think of that myself. Is Star Wars influenced by a real life issue? But I really can't point out like a specific war or anything like that. So I'm right there with you. The cinematography is by Peter Shusitsky, who is known for the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Morris Attacks. He also did this unusual, I think it was in the 1960s, film about what would have happened if Germany had conquered Britain in World War II, called It Happened Here, then became David Cronenberg's cinematographer. I think he might be underrated. I think a lot of what makes this one work is the cinematography. It's much darker. It's much more interesting. It's much more evocative. It has a nice tone. Yep. I totally agree. It should be noted, it was rather polarizing when it came out. Many critics and the audience didn't like the darker, edgier approach. They liked a more Flash Gordon, cartoonish approach of Star Wars. Others like me and you think this is the best of this trilogy. But even though the film did very well, because of this response, the third one is much more like the first one, an approach. And though enjoyable, it doesn't quite end the trilogy on the level I would have liked to see it. You know that old saying that history has 
has a tendency to repeat itself. I feel like the same thing happened with the new trilogy that came out when The Last Jedi had a much different tone than The Force Awakens did. We could do a whole separate podcast on The Last Jedi and how polarizing it is and everything. I'm personally a fan of the movie, but it was, I won't say reviled, but it was so polarizing to the point that Disney went back to J.J. Abrams to complete the trilogy. As a result of that, Rise of Skywalker feels like The Force Awakens and the fact that it's almost like they tried to combine two movies into one. They tried to put too much into that movie. It can be a little jarring in a sense because The Last Jedi looks so different than the other two. I don't think that to the same extent with The Empire Strikes Back because I can watch all three of those movies and they seem like a cohesive story. I just think it's funny that The Empire Strikes Back got the same reaction that The Last Jedi did, but it's also revered as the best Star Wars movie ever made. Yes, and I think the appreciation of it has grown over the years. I will throw this out there real quick. George Lucas in the 90s released the, I will say, polarizing special editions in theaters that had additions due to the you know advancement of digital technology. I think most famous, they added Jabba the Hutt back into the original Star Wars. They added new scenes in other films. I think the changes that were made in the special edition for this movie help. Being able to actually see the full Wampa when Luke is captured by him in the beginning of the movie, replacing the original actor who played Emperor Palpatine with Ian McDiarmid made sense. Changing Boba Fett's voice to Tamura Morrison, who played Jango Fett in Attack of the Clones. As we've learned, Boba Fett is a clone of him, so it makes sense. That one, I think, was the least popular decision of the tweaks or additions, but even making Cloud City a little more vibrant. Out of all the changes that were made, the ones that were made in Empire make the most sense. I'm not that familiar with with all the differences in them. So that's a great addition. I appreciate that. Yeah. But with that, here's some more information about the movie. It cost $30.5 million to make, originally budgeted at $8 million, and made between $538 and $549 million at the box office. It was the highest grossing movie of the year. Empire was nominated for three Oscars, Best Sound, Best Art Direction, Set Direction, and Best Score for John Williams. It won Sound and received a Special Achievement Award for Special Effects. This was the year of Ordinary People and Raging Bull, and Fame won Original Score. In 2010, The Empire Strikes Back was selected by the United States Library of Congress to be reserved in the National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Even so, Lucas refused permission to preserve the original, unaltered versions of Empire or Star Wars, and his efforts to submit the special editions instead was rejected. The library holds unaltered but unpreserved copies retained from the original film's copyright submissions. The scene where Vader confesses he is Luke's father was shrouded in secrecy. Prowse was given the line, Obi-Wan Kenobi is your father, to read because he was known for repeatedly, though inadvertently, leaking information. Only Kirshner, the producers, and Hamill knew the actual line, and Hamill only knew it, I think, a couple of hours before the scene was shot. Krauss was upset because he said he would have played it differently if he had had that line. I can't picture that scene being played any differently, though. I think that's just an actor's response. 
As with Star Wars, Lucas wanted to place all crew credits at the film's end to avoid interfering with the opening. The WGA and the DGA had allowed it for Star Wars because Lucas directed it. It featured the Lucasfilm logo. But they refused for Empire, and they fined Lucas $250,000 when he ignored them, and they tried to have the film removed from theaters. But because Lucas had followed all the laws in the United Kingdom that were relevant for that country, the DGA wasn't able to do anything like that, and instead fined Kirshner $25,000. Lucas paid that fine, but was so frustrated that he left the WGA, the DGA, and Motion Picture Association, restricting his ability to write and direct future films. Empire was important in another way. It was, I think, perhaps the first, where they spent more money on the sequel than the original. Usually when you had some sort of franchise, the second and third one said lower and lower budgets in order to make their profits. This was very famous in the Superman and the Jaws franchise. The sound of Vader's helmet being lowered onto his body was the sound of someone putting their hand over a vacuum tube while it was still sucking in dust. That makes sense because as soon as you said that, I visualized that sound in my head. And for those who like to collect where Wilhelm screams come, the Wilhelm scream is heard twice in this movie, once during the battle on Hoth as a rebel soldier and his laser gun dish explodes, and then right before Han is going to be frozen in the carbonite as Chewbacca very angrily throws the stormtrooper off the ledge. For those who don't know the Wilhelm scream, it is a very famous stock sound effect, reportedly the voice of Sheb Wooley, and named after a character in a movie who used the scream. Well, with that, let's get to my selection, and that is The Battle of Algiers. For some information about the film, The Battle of Algiers is an Italian-Algerian historical war film released in 1966. It was directed by Giulio Pontecorvo and written by Pontecorvo and Franco Salinas. It was inspired by the 1962 book Souvenirs de la Batalla d'Algiers, an FLN military commander's account of the campaign by Saadi Yassef, who appears in the film. It stars Jean Martin, Rahim Haj. Yasef Saadi, Tommaso Neri, Samia Krabash, Ugo Paletti, Fizio El Kader, Franco Marusi, and Mohammed bin Qasim. Between 1954 and 1957, after the French had been driven from Vietnam, the battle for Algerian independence was focused in the Kasbah located in the capital city of Algiers. The FLN, National Liberation Front, was formed by Muslims. They created revolutionary cells to carry out acts of terrorism. But the Piedmont, Europeans born in Algeria, fought back. Because of increasing violence, the French sent in Colonel Philippe Matou, a resistance hero, and the French paratroopers to quell the violence, which he proceeds to do in a ruthless and unforgiving manner. What do you think of the pairing of the two films? So I never watched this film before you told me this is what we were going to be talking about. I realized it fairly early on, the commonality of a group of people fighting against, in this case, it's the French government, and in The Empire Strikes Back, it's the Galactic Empire. I definitely noticed that theme of rebellion was the word that I kept coming back to. And you said you just recently saw the film? Yeah, I'd never seen it before and watched it yesterday. And what did you think? I enjoyed it, so I'm not as well-versed in foreign film as I probably should be. In a way, this gave me the opportunity to watch something, one, from a different country, and two, from a different era that I haven't watched a lot of movies from. A lot of people I know have reservations about watching foreign films because it's in a different language, but you look at a movie like Parasite that won so many Oscars a couple of years ago, and it was completely foreign. It takes a little getting used to, but as long as you read the subtitles, you can understand what's going on. I loved the 
almost documentary type look that the film had. It gave it a very raw and real feeling. In a way, I felt like I wasn't really watching a movie. I felt like I was watching a documentary. That aspect to me was really cool. Touching on that, when it was released in America, the advertisement often had, and it was also added, I think, to the movie as well. Basically, this is not a documentary. All of these scenes were recreations. It does have that feel of them capturing something that's really happening when it's all recreation. And I think they did a good job of recapturing that because it felt like I was watching a real event happen as it actually happened. And so, you're often puzzled as to how did they do this if it's not really happening? Because there were so many explosions, especially in the last third of the movie. It seems like every few minutes a building's being blown up. That's Even the reactions to it and then seeing quick cuts of normal everyday people laying on the ground dead with a little bit of blood coming out of their head or they're being carried away this feels like i'm watching a story on the news and they don't use a green screen those explosions are happening right there one filmmaker said it's very powerful but they don't think that anybody could ever possibly do that today it would just be too dangerous yeah i don't remember when i first saw it i don't think it was in college but it might have been this is my third or possibly more fourth viewing i think it's one of the greatest films ever made like a lot of filmmakers and people into movies do i find it riveting i find it as riveting as when i first saw it there's something to me that is just so compelling about it for a variety of reasons many of which we'll cover and of course one of it is that it is so documentary like that you just don't understand how it was made do you have some favorite scenes it may not be a specific scene, but the last 15 to 20 minutes of the movie, when the government is really starting to get a hold of the rebellion and they're starting to capture everyone, they're going through more, I won't say shady tactics, but we'll say more aggressive tactics. I found myself on the edge of my couch being drawn in to everything that was going on. I know it's different scenes put together, but just that whole sequence was awesome. Even though it looks like a documentary, it is very much structured like a normal fictional film building to climaxes and things of that nature so she put those two together yes and not only just that ending where they're gathering everybody up when it jumps a few years mm -hmm. and you realize well france won the battle but they lost the war everybody is coming out taking to the streets there's something about that where you realize well france lost they just completely lost Mm -hmm. A couple of my favorite scenes, one that always terrifies me, is when the kids are beating up on the drunk man. Yes. When, when in voiceover they're making an announcement that we have to start with their own people, we have to get rid of the prostitutes, we have to get rid of the drug addicts, the alcoholics. What in many ways upset me about this is they're sending kids to basically kill this drunk man. First of all, I'm thinking, well, they don't even have the one-all to do it themselves. They're going to send these kids to do their dirty work. And secondly, at that point, things are no longer cut and dry. I'm still all for Algiers getting their independence, but I'm not sure I want to be ruled by the FLN. Right. It, there's definitely some gray area. Like It's not so black and white where yeah, you're pulling for the Algiers to gain their independence but they're not all wearing halos on their heads. Right. Going off of that scene, there's one that happens later on in the movie where there's a group of people who are trying to beat on a kid that oh. I almost jumped out of my couch. Will you stop? How can you do that to a kid? And then you have these two guys who are trying to pull the kid away and you still have them chasing after the kid trying to hit him. It was insane. The other major scene for me, and it's one that is often really talked about, are the bombings with the three women. Mm -hmm. This is almost 
pure Hitchcock, pure example of when he talks about the difference between suspense and surprise. It's suspense if you know the bomb is there. It's surprise if you don't. And this was almost unbearable. It's especially unbearable if you've seen it before because you know what's going to happen. So it's even double suspense. There was just so much bombing. It was surreal to see and then thinking of how they pulled it off. And I'm curious to know if anyone was harmed during that. It's crazy if they weren't. Yeah, I agree, but I have yet to read anything that says that it did. And things like when they blew up some houses in the Kasbah itself, those were all fake. They weren't real stone. Mm -hmm. You try to figure out how they did it and how no one got hurt, and you think, oh my god. It was really cool to see a different type of filmmaking, and it makes me want to watch more. Seeing a different take on filmmaking from a different country. Well, I certainly will agree with that. In kicking off the discussion, I'll read a quote by Roger Ebert. He gave the film four out of four stars, calling it a great film. He says that it exists at this level of bitter reality. It may be a deeper film experience than many audiences can withstand. Too cynical, too true, too cruel, and too heartbreaking. It is about the Algerian war, but those not interested in Algeria may substitute another war. The Battle of Algiers has a universal frame of reference. The direction was by Gil Montecorvo. We talked a lot about that already, that he brought this attempt at neorealism in making this film. Neorealism was a form of filmmaking that began in Italy, actually during the war, but continued after the war. And some of the famous ones at that time were Ossession, Rome, Open City, The Bicycle Thief. It's not exactly grew out of an aesthetic movement, though it became an aesthetic movement. It more grew out of the fact that they had no money, they had little technology, they were trying to make movies a war was going on around them so they shot things on location they often used a lot of non-actors mainly in the supporting roles it was just a way to make a movie during a very very tough time and see a re-emergement of it in the last 10 years or so in such films as Nomadland, Minari and American Honey. And it's crazy to think that a almost revolutionary style of filmmaking came from a necessity. They had to make movies like this if they wanted to make it happen Oftentimes, as filmmakers, you sometimes have to work with what you have. You work with the resources you have, the locations, people, things like that. The Italians did that, and it kicked off a whole style that, as you mentioned, is still used today with a movie like Nomadland that you just don't feel like you're watching a movie. You're watching real life. If you can do it well, one of the main problems with neorealism is if you do use real actors. For the most part, I can automatically tell who the Mm -hmm. real actors are and who they are, and that can throw things out. One of the wonderful things about Nomadland is the lead, Francis McDormand, and all the recognized actors pulled their performances way back to match the non-actor, so that sometimes you really couldn't tell. So which is smart? I think neorealism could be a very important area to study for new filmmakers. They're making neorealist films whether they realize it or not, because you have to. Today, the way you rise up as a filmmaker is you start by making your own product. So you have to make these films with non-actors, and you have to find your own locations, and you can't afford to do a lot of stuff. So they're basically making neorealist films perhaps without the themes of neorealism so they're using neorealism but not using neorealism yes they're using the aesthetic but not the themes and ideas things come full turn what can you do (laughs) but the director 
director was a very politically minded director. He started in the 30s and was focused on documentaries and journalism. After the war, he made the film Capo, which was one of the first movies to deal with life in the concentration camps. And after the Battle of Algiers, he made Burn with Marlon Brando, which focuses on someone from Europe coming to a small Caribbean nation and manipulating revolutions to benefit the European owners of the nation. It's a very interesting film that doesn't quite work. Capo wasn't doesn't quite work. This probably is the best film ever made. He did fight in the Italian resistance during World War II. Some of the ways he was able to achieve what he achieved was he would draw chalk lines on the ground, divide the masses into separate groups. So they had to start walking on cue in order to get proper crowd movement. He would use multiple cameras at a time, use footage from different angles to create the impression that crowds were much larger. He would do scenes multiple times, a huge number of times to exhaust the non-actors to get the look on their faces that he wanted. He would film scenes as if a newsman were shooting them with soldiers between the camera and the protesters. So he used very much a documentary style. And I think had it been done any different way as far as the visual aspect goes, I don't think this movie would have worked as well. No, this is one of the things that really gives the movie its power. The screenplay was by Giulio Pontecorvo, also Franco Salinas. Salinas was also a very political writer, did Hannah Kay, State of Siege, Burn, Capo, Mr. Klein. Yasef wrote his own screenplay, but he didn't have any conversations or any plot. The Italian producers was too biased towards the Algerians. They were on the Algerian nationalist side, but they wanted the film to be more neutral. Final screenplay of the Battle of Assurance has an Algerian protagonist and depicts the cruelty and suffering of both Algerians and the French, Beats Noir, and the military forces. Oh, I loved it. Kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier in that the Algerians are the protagonist, but they do a couple of questionable tactics. It makes sense you explaining that story about how the screenplay didn't need to be so biased towards one side. I enjoyed the screenplay quite a bit. It does set up this idea, and I think it's also true in The Empire Strikes Back. When you have a rebellion like this, it's almost impossible to win in the long run. You can win the battle, but it's very difficult to ever win the war. One of the reasons why here is that other than getting rid of the terrorists and the rebels, France has nothing to offer Algeria. Not really, no. They have no strategic overall way to win the hearts and minds of the Algerians or the non-European Algerians. And in fact, they just got thrown out of Vietnam for the same reason. Because of the realistic effect that the movie has, you never feel like there could be some type of compromise between the two. Once the Piedmois in the film sneak into the Casbah and use a bomb to blow up, that's where the French lost the war. Mm-hmm. The only thing they could do at that time is arrest those three people, sentence them to death, and that might have saved them. Yeah, agreed. Matteau hints at this. He doesn't quite come out and say it, but he says, we can only win this as long as there's general support mm-hmm. for war. Once you use that public support, there's nothing we can do. And he mentions Sartre, who was one of the great philosophers of all time and one of the great philosophers in France, who wrote an article against the Algerian war. And Matteau said he's more scared of Sartre than he is of the rebels because Sartre can change the mind of the French public. No, you're right. I believe the quote, and I could be misquoting it, but it was talking to the press, do your job and do it well, because it was all about the perception, if you will. But the irony is if they do their job and do it well, France is going to look just as bad as Algeria, and ultimately it's probably not going to help. So I thought that's pretty ironic. You're telling them to do something that's probably not going to help you in the long run. It makes sense for him to say that, but you putting it that way, it's really a no-win situation for them. Right. 
During 2003, the press reported that the United States Department of Defense, Pentagon, offered a screening of the movie on August 27th. The Directorate for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict regarded it as useful for commanders and troops facing similar issues in occupied Iraq. And a flyer for the screening said, How to Win a Battle Against Terrorism and Lose the War of Ideas. Children shoot soldiers at point-blank range. Women plant bombs in cafes. Soon the entire Arab population builds to a mad fur. Sound familiar? The French have a plan. It succeeds tactically, but fails strategically. To understand why, I come to a rare showing of this film. And the same thing for Empire Strikes Back. They succeed tactically at the very end of Empire Strikes Back. They have everything, but ultimately they can't sustain that short victory. And it's funny because that's almost, it seems like inadvertent comparison between the two, if you think about it, as far as how things end for both of them. Right. This almost ends the same way as Empire Strikes Back, but there is a coda where it jumps and we see all the people entering the street and it's only a matter of time after that before France finally lets Algeria go. We have to wait for a whole new movie and Empire Strikes Back Yeah, for that to happen. I did like that that was thrown in at the end of the Battle of Algiers is it was almost like an epilogue. Right, and you had that one woman who was one of the bombers mm-hmm. who was out there in the crowd still trying to get independence for France. There are a couple of people in the movie involved in the acting who were actually in the FLN. At the oh, time. really? When it comes to the acting, Jean Martin as Colonel Matteau is the only professional acting. He was mainly a stage actor, not so much well-known in film and TV in France. So he was chosen so he wouldn't distract from the realism. He would more blend in with the non-actors. You can tell, though, that he carried himself, as far as acting goes, the best out of everyone. He almost commanded the screen. Anytime he would show up, you were drawn to him and what he was going to say and it was also how he said it too he to me was as far as compelling the best character in the entire film you're absolutely right you can tell that he is a professional actor but also yes he does command the screen even though technically he's not the central character Ali who is the one that last told the very end and is taken at the very end is supposedly the central character but yeah Matteo because of the actor and also because of his character and what the character is supposed to be does command the movie and it's he you remember more than the others well even the very first time he shows up on screen you're drawn to him like the first time you see Darth Vader you're just like okay this is the guy in charge he is the Darth Vader of Mm -hmm. this movie yep Martin had been dismissed years earlier from the Theatre National Populaire for signing the Manifesto of the 121 against the Algerian War. Martin was a veteran. He had served in a paratroop regiment during the Indo-China War, and he had also taken part in the French Resistance. And it's Sadi Yassef and Samia Gurbash, who are the ones who were actually members of the FLN. Like The Empire Strikes Back, with that great cinematography, that is perhaps one of the greatest aspects of this film. The cinematography is by Marcello Gatti, and it is quite impressive for succeeding in what it's trying to do. I also think it's arguably the most important part of this film. As I've mentioned a couple of times, without its style, and if it was done like a traditional narrative film, it would not have worked the way that it did. Right. And as I mentioned before, the effect was so convincing that American releases carried to notice that not one foot of newsreel was used. That was the phrase I was looking for. That's insane. Yeah. It's absolutely um, insane. The music is by both Gil Pantkorva and Ennio Morricone. And I hope you're a big fan of Ennio Morricone, because I can imagine anybody not being a big fan of Ennio Morricone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Gil Pontaporti did write the music originally, but because he was classified as a melodist composer in Italy, I have no idea what that means, and I couldn't find out what it means. He was required to work with another composer as well, so he got his friend Ennio Morricone to collaborate with him. Of course, Ennio Morricone is famous for The Good, Bad, The Ugly, and films of that nature. He's one of the greatest film composers of all time. Absolutely. Uh, also, this incredible Algerian drumming that is heard. You hear more consistently as the film progresses, especially when you get to the climax of the film. It was something that I noticed as a reoccurring theme. It was almost like as soon as you hear the drums, something wild's about to happen. Right. And it draws you in, which is a very important quality when it comes to the score. Music can really make or break a film. A lot of people may not think that, but if you put some type of silly circus music instead of what was there, you'd feel way differently about it. So that drumming you talked about, the second I heard it, I went, oh no. It's like Jaws. Mm -hmm. Yep. You know, the shark's coming. The exact same thing. The film had another effect, not just on film, but it had a big effect on the world as a whole because it coincided with a major decolonization period and a world filled with national liberation wars. The movie gained a reputation for inspiring political violence, often because various political groups looked to this film and copied how they were carrying out their terrorist activities. Groups like the Black Panthers, the Provisional Irish Republican Army, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and the Jammu Kashmir Liberation Front all supposedly copied how this organization was created and how the activities were carried out. It was also reportedly Andreas Bader's favorite film, and he was the head of the Bader-Meinhof complex in Germany. It was not screened for five years in France. It was eventually released in 1971. Not all reception was positive. Cahiers to Cinema devoted a special feature to the film consisting of five articles by critics, philosophers, and film scholars. They were so negative about the film and were so negative in very strong terms that it, they said it undermined on moral grounds the legitimacy of any critic or analyst who did not condemn the film, let alone anyone who dared consider it worthy of filmic attention. That just seems like a wild thing for Cahiers to Cinema to say, that if you like this film, that automatically means you shouldn't be taken seriously as a film critic. I think that's a little extreme. Yes. <laughs> a lot of people or countries in this case, they'll look outward, but a lot of times don't look inward. It also makes me say I don't want any of the January 6th terrorists to ever see this film. The only thing that calms me down about it is I can't imagine any of them wanting to see a foreign film. I shudder to think of what would happen if they did. <laughs> But it, I was reading it also influenced a lot of more modern day filmmakers that a lot of people might be more aware of, most notably Christopher Nolan, who said that the film was one of his favorites and inspired The Dark Knight Rises and Dunkirk, which I also thought of when I was watching this movie. My mind also went to Dunkirk. Well, with that, here's some more information about the film. It cost $800,000 to make and made 879794 domestically. So then it went on to make more money around the world. It was nominated for three Academy Awards, but in non-consecutive years. This happened to only very few films. It was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film in 1967, and then Best Screenplay and Best Director in 1969. The reason why is that in 1967, either Italy or Algeria, I'm not sure who, probably Italy, submitted it in the best foreign language film category, but it did not receive an American release until 1969. So that in 1969, it could be nominated for the other awards. This is not allowed anymore. If the film that you submit for a foreign language film and is nominated does not get a release that year, it can't be nominated in any other category. 
1967 was the year of A Man and a Woman, that won Best Foreign Film, and 1969 was the year of Oliver and the Producers. The film won the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival. It occupies the 48th place on the critics' top 250 films of the 2012 Sight and Sound poll, as well as the 128th place on Empire Magazine's list of the 500 greatest movies of all time. Yasef Saadi, whose memoirs were the basis of the film, played his own real-life character in this film that is called Shafar. The man being executed in the prison scene was picked for the role because he had actually been sentenced to death during the insurgency. Oh, wow. That's so intense in the fact find somebody who was actually sentenced to death to play that type of role. With that, let's start closing out, and I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that might interest our audience. Two that throw out to me, and one is related to this in a sense, the other is not. Judas and the Black Messiah, which I believe is on HBO Max, it was one of the most powerful films that I have watched in quite some time. It deals with the real-life story of Fred Hampton, who was one of the leaders of the Black Panthers, played brilliantly by, I believe his name's Daniel Rekulua. Mm. Uh, and then another, if you're looking for something with a little more of a lighter tone is a movie I've watched several times, but the movie Chef starring John Favreau, he also wrote and directed the film. I say that because I'm using that as research for my next short film that I'm doing. Fantastic. Well, I have a few that are centered around rebellions. Red Dawn is John Milius's, for me, very enjoyable, but a bit schlocky, 1984 film about a group of teenagers who form an underground movement to fight back against a Russian invasion and the takeover, not just their small town, but the whole country. The 2019 Captive State stars John Goodman. It's a sci-fi story that follows the underground movement in Chicago against the world having been taken over by aliens. Jean-Pierre Melville's Army of Shadows, released in 1969, is a devastating and difficult film to watch. It centers on the morality of the French resistance in World War II, a morality that often has to be made up on the spot. October, 10 Days That Shook the World is a 1927 silent film co-directed by Sergei Eisenstein about the 10 days of the Russian Revolution. And then Woody Allen's 1971 Bananas, in which a New York nebbish ends up involved in the Latin American Revolution. So what is next? What should we be expecting from you? My podcast, as I mentioned earlier, The Derek Diamond Experience, I release new episodes every Thursday. If you prefer the video versions, those are on YouTube. Just search for the show name, and you'll be able to pull those up there. Otherwise, if you want to hear the audio version, it's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, really anywhere you get your podcast. It's a, a combination of movie news and pop culture discussion, as well as with a interview with someone who works or has worked in the film industry, which you recently came on my show. When you get finished listening to this show, you can go listen to Howard's conversation with me over on the Derek Diamond Experience. If you want to follow the show on social media, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Podcast. And then I've got a short in the works that I think I've got the script finished, even though at times I wonder, is a script ever truly finished? I hope to film it maybe around November or December and then have it released early next year. That sounds great. I'll list my usual litany. I'm a screenwriter and script consultant, and you can find more information about that on my Howard Kastner screenplay consultation page on Facebook. My blog is called Rantings and Ravings, and there I explore issues on film and screenwriting. I publish two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, supernatural, and fantasy short stories. I've also published the second edition of my screenwriting book, More Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader, and I'm an amateur photographer, and you can find those on Instagram. The previous podcast 
podcast was with blogger Tony Kogan, where we talked Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit, and the 1931 version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, both about a scientific experiment that goes wrong and creates a monster. The next podcast will be with filmmaker and actor David O, where we will discuss Ang Lee's The Wedding Banquet and Yasujiro Ozu's Late Spring, what we are calling matchmaking Asian style. So with that, Derek, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on my show. Absolutely. No, this was fun. Thank you so much for having me. 